Welcome to Parents Perspective. This is so cool. 14-year-old Carly gushed to her friend Meredith on the phone. My class is going to have a whole week of environmental ed, and we're going to camp out the whole time. Well, it's sort of like a wilderness. You know, it's got some woods, a river, some hills for hiking. Just a neat kind of place. Hmm. We're supposed to look for certain specimens of plants, see if they still grow there. And, she grimaced, to see how many kinds of fish that are supposed to live in the river have still survived. Kind of creepy to think of stuff dying off. Yeah, duh, of course I'm taking a sleeping bag. We'll be sleeping on the ground. But I'll have to call you when I'm back because there's no place to charge a cell phone. From a parent's perspective, what should we know about environmental education for our children? I'm Sandy Burt. And I'm Linda Perlis. Our guest has experience as a third-grade teacher as well as science curriculum advisor. Vinnie Shaney has been active in environmental education since her early teens and has been teaching for 29 years. She's the director of the Burgundy Center for Wildlife Studies at Cooper's Cove Wildlife Sanctuary, the 500-acre West Virginia mountain campus of the Burgundy Farm Country Day School of Alexandria, Virginia. Witnessing the value placed on nature and education through immersion in the efforts of her elementary school teachers and parents, she credits these adults in her life as the source of her commitment to her life's vocation. Welcome to Parents Perspective, Vinny. Thank you. What is the funniest misconception that you have seen students have about their outdoors environment? Mostly ideal in fear. You know, mostly you deal in fear from parents and sometimes fear from children. But over the years, there's one thing that stands out, and that is an episode that occurred actually not with really young children, but an assistant of mine was working with me for the fall, and he invited his younger brother out to visit. And I don't know where they had grown up, but they were walking down the road one lovely, clear evening. And he noticed that his younger brother was kind of twisting around and looking fidgety and disconcerted. And he said, what's the matter? And the guy said, why do you have streetlights out here? And where's the streetlights? I can't find. And my assistant said, that's the moon. (laughs) (laughs) There are no streetlights out at our facility. And it was a beautiful full moon. And the thing is that we're not accustomed to light sources. A lot of people don't realize that the moon is extremely strong, really big light and it was almost as light as day. And of course, you know, moon shadow, right? We can see our moon shadow. And he just thought there must be a street light. And he couldn't find the source of the light. That was the problem. He couldn't was, figure out where the light was coming from. There was some commercial I saw on television about people who came outside of their office buildings and were going, what is that? What is that bright light? What it, you know, and it was the sunshine they weren't used to being out in. Oh, the sunshine <laughs> thing. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's more concerning, I think. Yeah, I think so, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, besides knowing that the moon is bright, uh-huh. why should children have environmental education? You know, when people ask me that, it's as if someone had asked me, why should a child walk or why should a child know how to read? It's so elemental. And I realize that it's not obvious to everybody. But, well, for one thing, if you like to breathe the air or if you like to drink the water or eat food, you need to recognize that that is nature. That's the natural world. That is your environment. All these things come from your environment. Without an understanding of the environment, we may well eliminate our air, our water, and our food. And we're actually doing a very good job of that right now. (laughs) And so, yeah, that's 
you know, survival would be a basic reason for environmental education. That's a little dolorous, I understand. But if you want to become a little more personal about it, we ourselves are animals. A lot of people resist that for religious reasons or for just, you know, just seems distasteful to think of yourself as an animal. But if you really want to understand your own self, you have to start with understanding that you, in fact, are nature. You are an animal. And it pretty much begins there. If you want to understand yourself, you have to start by understanding what and who you are. And Homo sapiens is an animal. There is also the matter of caretaking. We need our water and our air, and that doesn't just stand alone. You can't just preserve water by itself. You can't just preserve air by itself. As we're finding, you know, you cut down all the trees, you're going to be a little short on oxygen. Or if you kill off our oceans, we're really going to be short on oxygen. But beyond all that, there's simply just the matter of your own quality of life and the growth of your own soul. I find that there's just a lot more enjoyment to be had in the world from enjoying what's out in it. So it could be as simple as the enjoyment of fresh air. You know, if you're depressed, if you're anxious, if you're having a bad day, if you can't get your work done, really the best solution is just go out and take a walk. Research has shown that exercise literally improves the efficiency in the synapses in your brain. So taking a walk in itself, you're now going to come back and be able to sit down and think better. These days, if you think, oh, I have no money, I can't go anywhere, I can't do anything, if you have learned to appreciate simple things, or if you've learned to look at the world and recognize, oh, you know, look, there's a rose blooming in the middle of January, that's really interesting. Nature's pretty much free. You don't have to pay to see nature, you know. Almost anywhere has some green space that you can turn to for comfort or solace. And again, research has shown that people in an office will be more productive, will be calmer, will be more balanced if they have a window, if they have a green plant. So recognizing that in yourself is a very powerful tool. And just plain enjoying what's around. Like I was driving in on 66 the other day from where I live in Shenandoah County, and at mile marker 20, was startled to notice a large bird circling. And, you know, I talk about distractive driving. But in any event, I had to look up, and sure enough, it was a bald eagle. And my sensation was I saw all these cars zooming by me in every direction. I knew I was the only person at mile marker 20 who was appreciating that this once extremely rare bird was circling overhead, having a nice day. And, oh, I just made my whole day. You know, I was actually sharing this with a friend of mine the other day, saying, you know, I... I just wanted to get out of the car and, you know, make everybody stop. Look, it's a bald eagle. <laughs> he said, yeah, I have that. And he also grew up in the same manner I did, appreciating the natural world as very much a part of his life. And he said, yeah, I've had that feeling so many times. You know, are you seeing this? This is great. And you feel like a lot of the world is missing out a lot. A lot of people have a kind of a, um, blinders around them. They've got a filter that's just built up over the years and or because the lack of permission to keep noticing. So quality of life, if nothing else, if you don't like any of those other reasons, quality of life for yourself. We'll take a short break now and be right back to continue our discussion on environmental education for children. The popular book, Raising a Successful Child, Discover and Nurture Your Child's Talents, by Sandra Burt and Linda Perlis is available at all major bookstores and on the web. Welcome back to Parents Perspective. We're talking with Vinnie Shaney about environmental education for children. You're working with children. 
Correct. in the environment. Yes. And so would you describe a little bit for us Burgundy Farm School's environmental education program? Oh, sure. Well, my branch of the environmental education program is at their mountain campus in West Virginia. So that particular school has two campuses. Several schools actually have done this over the years. And remarkably, Burgundy Farm Country Day School in 1966 had already started to have a summer camp. And they saw the success of that camp and said, oh, maybe we should expand on this. And literally, this is what the head of the school at the time said. They should have a place to get away and think about their relationship to the universe. Lofty goal. And so they did look around and find this West Virginia. It was about 450 acres at the time. And go to considerable lengths and financial risk to make the purchase. And so now the children have their 25-acre campus in Alexandria, Virginia, as it is, which is not to be sneezed at, especially now. But also, they all come out to a West Virginia campus, 500 acres to explore at this point. I would say there's two branches to their environmental education. The program they've got is that each child starting in grade one will spend one to two nights each fall and each spring, just about every class, there's a couple of exceptions, in the West Virginia campus. So they're there for 48 hours normally in the fall and the spring every year. So by the time you graduate from Burgundy School, you will have had 13 trips out to West Virginia. And it stands in contrast with your story that you started with, because I actually don't have a lot of truck in that kind of a program, because if the only time you have environmental education in your whole school career is like fifth grade, one week, and nature, well, what if it rains that whole week? Mm-hmm. What are you going to learn from that? You're going to learn that nature is really unpleasant and miserable and whew, got that over with, never have to do that again. Whereas these children come back and they come back. You can do spiral education. You can come back to certain topics. And you'll have cold days, warm days, you know, wet days, whatever. So you're going to have a lot of different experiences. And so throughout all those visits, they go through a series of activities which are designed to be developmentally appropriate for the children, which will build on each other, and I think, very importantly, integrate with what's going on back at school. So, for example, the first grade studies uh, the Underground Railroad. We have a kind of an Underground Railroad experience for them their first evening at our facility. In two, three, they study the Chesapeake Bay, so we spend a lot of time looking at our own limestone spring and the stream that comes out of it, and that, which then connects to the rivers and then down to the bay. In the fourth and fifth grades, they have a medieval unit, so we do a lot with medieval cures, with herbs and the plants that we have right there, which were actually brought to this part of the world from Europe. Most of the plants in your field are actually brought to this country as cures or medicines or foods. They study the colonial era, so we actually have a colonial living experience, which is, give credit where credit's due, modeled on the Turkey Run program, which is in the D.C. area, and right on up into the 7th and 8th grade. You know, in the 8th grade, the last visit, they've been doing some physics, so we actually have a little geocache activity in which they use compasses and they use a GPS, which relates to the science they've been doing at school. So... Very carefully, and as the program at school changes, the program in their West Virginia campus changes so that there is, it's not just this isolated experience. No topic exists in isolation. We just tend to compartmentalize them for convenience. But really, everything should properly be integrated because that's how the world is. No one topic stands alone. And back to the Alexandria campus, they have 25 beautiful acres there. So right in the middle of Alexandria is an old farm. It's why it's called Burgundy Farm Country Day School. It was a dairy farm. 
it's really still full of some climax stage forests, some fields, a lot of thicket area. So there's a lot of natural world for them right there. And just going from one class to another, you're running outside. I mean, you can't do one thing, move from one thing to another there without going outside. Um, They make use of the campus. There is actually an active barnyard there. So the children, each class has a month of caretaking and feeding and cleaning, you know, being in and amongst these animals, which uh, over the years has been civilized. I actually was a child at that school. And back then, the animals were mostly walking around and knocking over children. So they put the animals (laughs) into the behind the fences, probably a good idea. There's a pond there, so they compare the life in the pond there to the life in the pond that we have in West Virginia. So there's a lot of comparative work. They've involved the children in plantings there and in controlling invasive aliens and in identifying the wildflowers that are there. Invasive alien plants. Oh, invasive alien plants. No, little green men. Just checking. Yep, invasive. Sorry, it's it's, it's such a jargon term for anyone in the natural world, work of natural world. Yeah, invasive alien plants and... Are there specific kinds of outdoor experiences that are especially appealing for Mm. young children? Mm -hmm. Well, you could almost look at what is appealing to young children, period, and then work from there. So they want to handle things. They want to eat things and put them in their mouth. And actually, there's a lot out there to be eaten. And since children are naturally going to put things in their mouths, why not start by showing which things you can put in your mouth, which things you'd better not put in your mouth? Just using the senses directly. So smelling, seeing, touching, touching, touching. Handling as much as possible. Um, Of course, with some caveats around the health of the things that are being touched. I mean, there's definitely a lot of sacrificial insects out there. You know, some ladybugs don't survive the experience, but there's a lot of ladybugs. And if you expand back and look at the whole picture, it's okay, I think, to let a few sacrificial ladybugs be squished in the interest that this child will grow up being more sensitive to ladybugs in general. Let them hunt things, catch things, get dirty, get muddy, splash around, wallow in the water. Not a lot of fact collecting. I mean, they'll be osmotically collecting a lot of facts just through their experiences. So a lot of hands-on stuff is good for young children. Same as you would say in an elementary classroom. They should be touching and directly doing, experiencing, not talking about it, not listening to me talk. They're not going to listen anyway. And we know that when they touch things, right? Yeah. Isn't it true that the wiring changes? Uh-huh, absolutely. Yeah. The more sensory experiences, the better for all of us, really, but certainly for young children because that's, as we know, they all have different learning styles, so you want to be providing for as many of those learning styles and intelligences as they've got. So, What kind of experiences do you encourage for tweens and teens? Mm. Well, they also... Don't underestimate the value of direct experience, you know. I guarantee you that high school students and middle school students do not like being sat down in rows at desks any more than young children do. They just can be made to do it sometimes. But they have a lot going on inside of them, and they want to be using that and expressing it. I would say, however, that once you're working with tweens, they like things with an edge. They like things with a little risk, a little physical challenge, a little personal challenge. You know, so that's when you start doing sports like kayaking and rock climbing and geocaching and getting physical activity. You also want group activity. They're very social at that age, and they want to be doing things together. So pairing people up and letting people work on projects together, for example, or small group problem solving, that's very, you know, well, if you're around a bunch of middle schoolers, you know, they just, it's nonstop talk. Do you find that when they've had those cooperative experiences, do the teachers say that they go back and their behavior back on the main campus is different? 
that they've mm. changed the social dynamics a little bit or changed the way kids feel about themselves? Well, I will say that at the school, there's so much of that that I don't think you could separate what they do in West Virginia with me, specifically in our school. So I don't get that kind of feedback simply because that kind of learning style is so much a part of the program there. However, I have had a lot of people tell me that after, we also have a summer camp program at the same facility, which is not necessarily the school children from Burgundy. And I do get a lot of feedback from parents of how much maturation happens in just two weeks. And I think a lot of the personal growth that they experience as a result of working with others, sharing, taking their turn in taking care of their environment seems to make a big difference to them. And that's another element that I think, you know, I said social, but at the same time, there's a lot going on internally for them at that age. They're figuring out so much about themselves. And so a chance to express yourself through the arts or writing, they've got a lot to say through different media. And there's a lot of ways that you can focus on the natural world without necessarily identifying anything. But if you spend enough time trying to draw a flower, you're going to know more about that flower than if you tried to key it out. Or if you've sat alone with your journal outside, that gives you a lot of room to think not only about what's around you, but what's inside of you as well. And providing young people with, I guess, the external structure and the freedom to be quiet and be alone and think about what's happening with you. There's a lot of environmental education going on at the same time. Um, use of the environment and increased comfort with the environment, recognition that being outside and alone turns out to be a very valuable way to spend your time. We'll take a short break now and be right back to finish our discussion on environmental education. Parents' Perspective needs you, your feedback, your opinions, and not least, your donations that help with the cost of producing this award-winning program. Visit us online at www.parentsperspective.org and click on to Give Direct, I Give, or eBay at Mission Fish. Please help us continue to help you. Thank you. Welcome back to Parents Perspective. We're talking with Vinnie Shaney about environmental education. What a difference between that and the constant plugged-in life oh, yeah. that most of our tweens and teens have. Yeah. Do they have a problem giving that up? They say they do. However, we have rules, of course, with the school. and with, I mean, As in your story, we have electrical outlets, but they're not allowed to bring their devices with them. And certainly in the summer camp, that's really never been an issue. It's just there's just too much going on. So it's not an issue as long as there's plenty of interesting things going on. I think that people at first think, how am I going to manage without it? But then they're just so busy that they forget to miss it. Well, but also it sounds like not only are they busy, but it sounds like a different pace. There's it, well, a, a little bit of a slowing down yeah. and a sense of... It's okay not to have something going on every minute. Yeah. My summer staff comprises pretty much teenagers as well, and they say that they really appreciate being released from the pressures and expectations of their normal social situations. You know, the fact that I can't, sorry, I can't email. And we all know that, you know, oh, sorry, no access, can't, can't get email for this weekend. Sorry about that. And they have the same reaction, which is it's liberating that, you know, you simply cannot meet your obligations and the expectations of instant response. And so that's liberating because now you've got some time with yourself. 
or just with people actually face-to-face, physically with them. What kind of feedback have you gotten from teachers Mm. at the school after the kids come back from these experiences, these outdoor experiences? I guess the most interesting feedback I get is stories where all of a sudden something that's come up in the classroom is related to what they did, you know, six months ago. And you think, oh, my gosh, I can't believe they remember that. But some funny little instance, and you never know which is the most teachable moment, but something plugged in and then stuck and it comes back. I've had the opportunity to see people grow up and move into the world using the experience that they had with the natural world. And so, you know, if you think this is all very well, but is this going to get my child in Harvard kind of questions? (laughs) Well, um, actually, yeah. I mean, most of the kids who have worked with me turn out to have, you know, really refined their brains and really honed their skills of observation and ability to do critical thinking and think fast in a difficult situation. And yeah, they do actually (laughs) end up in extraordinary schools. But also the life choices they make, the clothes they choose, the food they eat, the decisions they're making in their lives are so clearly well thought out and with a much bigger picture and a much less selfish attitude towards their use of the world. And, I mean, just from being around people and seeing them now in their 40s and what they're doing with their lives, it's remarkable how just having been given permission to take their beginning interest in the natural world and run with it, which all children, of course, have, it's just that we squelch it, the degree to which that has affected them as adults. I see it in the degree to which they take that into their science work, their education work, their law work, which kinds of law jobs they choose to have, what kind of medicine. You know, so many of my former staff are now in emergency room medicine or wilderness medicine and uh, working in hospice and working in, you know, homeless shelters. You know, that's where they're taking their work. So it's clearly had this other effect that the world is benefiting from. You don't see a direct line unless you happen to have stuck in the same work for a very long time. You know, that's how it is, right? The results don't show until one day. You don't know when that day is going to be. So, In general, what would you say is the most important idea or concept for parents and caring adults to remember about educating children environmentally? Mm. It's pretty simple, really. I would say there's sort of two prongs to the same point. One is, as an adult, you do not need to know any more than the child about the natural world. I think we always want to be the experts and a step ahead of the children, but... You don't have to know any more than the children do. What you need to do is role model the willingness to explore, take risks, get wet, get dirty, go outside, let your child get wet, get dirty, go outside, get scratched, get bitten, you know, all those things. It's going to be okay. And, you know, just learning to say, "Uh uh-oh, and get back up and try again is very much a part of that. You know, I often consult teachers. Most teachers are trained mainly in math and reading, and they don't necessarily get much science teaching in teacher programs. So, One of the things I say is, you know, just start at the same level as the children. Go check out some books at the child's level. You know, read that. Now you can go to the next thing along with them. So the willingness to explore and learn alongside the child would be the most important. And if you had one book that was going to teach you about how to be with children in the natural world, you just read The Sense of Wonder by Rachel Carson and you're all set. And it applies not only to children but also to teens and tweens and She said, I sincerely believe that for the child and for the parents seeking to guide him, it is not half so important to know as to feel. If facts are the seeds that later produce knowledge and wisdom, then emotions and the impressions of the senses are the fertile soil in which the seeds must grow. So let the child go along and explore and just, you know, 
help get him up out of the stream if he falls in, but then, you know, see if there's a salamander in the stream. Don't go running back inside. You know, wet's not going to kill you. It sounds like on a very basic level, we all have to remember to enjoy the outside environmental experience ourselves in order to have the ground prepared for our children to do it. Oh, absolutely. I find that the greatest challenge in educating children is not educating children, but educating their parents to let (laughs) me educate their children. That's been by far the greatest challenge in my work. Well, unfortunately for us, time is always a challenge here. And so before we close, for our listeners who want to pursue further some of the issues we've been discussing, what resources would you suggest besides Rachel Carson, (laughs) who obviously (laughs) is a giant? she's right up front. (laughs) Richard Louvre has been the most recent and wonderful. Uh, You know, he wrote it all down and did the research. And so Last Child in the Woods, he gets into some architectural questions at the end, but the section on how nature benefits your child, I think it would be very reassuring to most parents. And, of course, everywhere in the states there's regional parks who are just dying to provide programs to you. And everybody has a website now, and I can't give you a list of them. But, you know, just at the very basic, most accessible level, just your local park system, they'd love to have you come out. They'd probably have volunteers and docents just dying to show you around. Well, this has certainly been beneficial to all of us who've heard you. So, Vinnie Shaney, thank you so very much for being with us and helping us understand more about the importance of environmental education. Mm, My pleasure. The best way to get in touch with Parents Perspective is to email us at parentsper at gmail.com. Our first listener will receive an autographed copy of our book, Raising a Successful Child, Discover and Nurture Your Child's Talents. Just email us at parentsper, parents, P-A-R-E-N-T-S-P-E-R, at gmail.com and give us your name and snail mail address and mention show number 498. Tell us, if you can, what station you're tuning into. Visit our website, www.parentsperspective.org, where you can even listen to a show of your choice, or check us out at facebook.com slash parentsperspective. This is Sandy Bird and Linda Perlis. We're glad you could share Parents Perspective. Today's program was made possible with generous support from you, our listeners. Our sound engineer is Kent Hitchcock. Music for this program was composed and performed by Jonathan Burt. <laughs>